So yeah, just to begin, you can give a quick introduction to who you are and, and what you've written. My name is Max Ayo. I'm a postdoc at Wageningen University's Rural Sociology Department and a researcher with the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty in the Environment, as well as a graduate from the Cornell Department of Development Sociology, where I specialized in uh, post-colonial development and decolonization in Tunisia in the general context of the agrarian question. Uh, I'm also a longtime anti-Zionist and anti-imperialist activist, including in Students for Justice in Palestine at Cornell, um, where I was also involved in a wide range of other uh, social political causes. Uh, and I uh, recently have a book out, A People's Green, Green New Deal. Very cool. And I'm, I'm also involved in the SJP here at Cornell, so very cool to hear that you were also involved in it. Um, so yeah, just to go in, into the book, uh, I'm curious, just to kind of start off, if you can give a brief kind of summary of, of the intention of the book and where you wanted to kind of weigh in uh, with respect to the debate over the Green New Deal, in particular focusing on like the idea of unequal exchange and kind of emphasizing to people that development and green development in the, in the first world comes at the expense of people in the global south. And, Kind of how this plays a role in in the ongoing conversation that uh, we've been having politically about these reform initiatives of the first world and and who they ultimately uh, benefit and who they affect. Uh, how do you think that the narrative of the Green New Deal is still being affected by the insistence on anti-imperialism as a key component of of green development? So it's a very important issue. So when I engaged in this topic, it was in a way out of shock. I have been doing journalism on ecology and climate since 2007 or 2008, and I've been interested in uh, agrarian issues in the third world and the first world and, and the environment more broadly since I was a child. Now, when I, I, I was surprised, although frankly, I should not have been surprised, when Ocasio-Cortez, who I have admittedly not been paying much attention to, launched her Green New Deal, this was kind of swiftly uh, launched into the stratosphere of progressive thought as, first of all, a political possibility that is based on the, it was kind of hitched to the then uh, considered serious possibility of a Bernie presidency. It was uh, used also as a, a way of thinking that we could actually meaningfully begin to resolve the U.S. responsibility for the climate crisis beginning in 2020 or 2021, another dash talk. Um, and the kind of thimble rig or the, the, the ideological lubrication uh, and also the ideological coding that was used to kind of get uh, Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal into these conversations was this pretext that Ocasio-Cortez was first of all a socialist and that her Green New Deal was eco-socialist. And of course, uh, unfortunately, Jacobin Magazine, which I uh, used to be uh, an editor for, uh, was very much responsible for this kind of uh, buffet of uh, misrepresentations and falsehoods. And I was, uh, I was quite shocked. I was shocked, uh, again, I shouldn't have been shocked um, based on this type of misrepresentation, but I was shocked because reading the actual text of her Green New Deal does not make one think that it was a socialist initiative, right? What we were dealing with fundamentally was a, was a marketing maneuver rather than uh, any maneuver that was actually rooted in what was being uh, 
put forward as draft legislation. So this was all somewhat, uh, I, I was quite taken aback and immediately began to write a series of articles pushing back against it. Now, those articles had uh, some traction um, uh, because there was of course, uh, always a hankering for uh, more dissident perspectives. And it's actually, it's worth considering just how different actually we are. This was 2019, I believe. It, it, the, the whole conversation is very different in 2022 from 2019. It's a radically different. Uh, and this is something that's very interesting and, and hopeful to me also. But nevertheless, there was uh, it, it, the, the idea to actually criticize both what Ocasio-Cortez represented, the forces she was uh, that were behind her and the kind of reformist Green New Deal that she was proposing. When I tried to do that, people were like, well, no, this is a transitional program and this is an eco-socialist program. And this was in uh, academic peer reviews. And I was completely shocked, right? I was completely shocked. I was like, well, how are these manifest falsehoods actually being crystallized is historical reality. Okay, this is the actual production of ideology in, in front of our very eyes, right? And through passing through these kind of uh, flack of the ideological institution. So it's actually becoming impossible to just tell the truth about what she actually represented. So therefore, I was like, okay, uh, this is very important to me because, okay, these are issues of anti-imperialism, these are issues of agrarian development, totally absent in the Ocasio-Cortez Green Deal. These are issues of third world development, where I've been, uh, been living for most of the last decade, uh, also very critical and should be critical no matter where you're living. Uh, and okay, this has all been totally erased. And actually, erasure, if anyone tries to point it out, uh, is very much bristled at. Right. So, of course, it's very important then, it was, seemed very important to me to enter the conversation in a, in a way and try to highlight uh, some of the third world traditions of political ecology um, and the third world traditions of uh, Marxism and anti-imperialist uh, Marxism and political economy that were actually the fundamental elements of uh, the radical and even the, the kind of neo-developmentalist end of the third world project or the Bandung project, however we want to christen it, uh, starting really in the 1950s, right? That there was a very rich tradition of thinking about how to carry out sovereign development and also uh, how to carry out sovereign eco-development of various kinds that uh, had no, uh, and, and furthermore, that there was a relatively newer tradition of how to carry out first world, third world convergence, namely uh, through uh, international climate justice, climate debt payments, uh, anti-militarism, anti-Pentagon sentiment, anti-imperialism, uh, anti uh, support for decolonizing the atmosphere and so forth. These ideas that were uh, critically important that had come from uh, sovereign third world states with strong socialist, radical, uh, ecological movements like uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, uh, and all of which have been radically excised like tumor style, as though they were tumors from the first world conversation starting in 2019. And I was totally taken aback by this. So I uh, decided I would uh, pitch a book about it to uh, the, the, my colleagues uh, who were very supportive. And uh, that's, where, that's where it ended up precisely because I said, okay, uh, you know, we cannot carry on, especially with my background coming from uh, extensive work around the Palestinian struggle, uh, for, for my adult life. I was completely shocked that these were being totally excised from the conversation and there was no, uh, there was no glance around to say, okay, are, is, is this plan for a first world kind of 
pseudo-eco-development or this first world green social democracy, is it not, uh, how is it in conversation with anti-imperialist or even just anti-Zionist movement? Anti-Zionism is quite distinct from anti-imperialism, right? There, is, there was no conversation. In fact, the conversation was censored and muffled. And again, uh, this would seem to me uh, extremely harmful to long-term uh, and even short-term or immediate-term movement building. It seemed a form of a reformist opportunism that had to be sharply contested, not least because the most important thing uh, when we're talking about third world development is keeping politics in command and keeping the national liberation question in view that is third world countries need to have um, be able to set the terms of their engagement in the international system on their own terms, right? This cannot be, and they will not benefit from a rising tide. A rising, a rising tide could put them underwater as soon as it could lift their boat because their boat may have too many holes in it, which have been created by the history of US and uh, European colonialism and imperialism, right? And this entire uh, aspect of the conversation, the national liberation question in the third world as constitutive of resolving the, the global political ecological crisis created by imperialism and capitalism, all of this have been radically erased from the conversation. So I thought it very important to uh, begin to push back on it, if, if even in a small way. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I'm curious, you, you're describing kind of, I think it gets to the heart of a big debate within the left, within the first world and within the West in general of this question of the centrality of anti-imperialism. We've seen a similar kind of debate, uh, I think, with respect to, to Palestine within like the US social democratic and kind of reformist left of really not committing uh, fully to the cause of, of Palestine. So that's, you know, definitely been kind of a, a, a theme, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by how you connect food sovereignty and ecological sovereignty to this campaign of, of anti-imperialism. And I, in reading some of what you wrote, particularly in researching in Tunisia, I was really fascinated by just the extent to which it's impossible to disconnect uh, U.S. food dominance and U.S. agricultural dominance over uh, the global South. So I guess we can we can go there too. Is to what extent does your proposal in uh, a People's Green New Deal tackle the way in which this, like people typically think about imperialism and just think, okay, it's when we go invade a country, it's when uh, you know we have maybe even like economic control, but they don't really think to the extent of what you talk about the PL 480 uh, food aid program that it's, as you call it, a Trojan horse. So why aren't people considering food sovereignty, agricultural uh, dominance by the United States within anti-imperialism? And how do we shape a program that considers this as an integral part of anti-imperialism? Uh, well, for understandable reasons, even if I, I don't think those reasons are fully justified, there has not been sufficient attention to uh, class conscious anti-imperialism in the United States and uh, probably in Europe, although uh, I can speak uh, less intelligently or intelligibly uh, about the intellectual and political milieu there. Uh, so there has not been, you know, anti-imperialism is uh, understood as opposition to the policies overall of the U.S. state, but uh, certain of those policies, whether uh, especially military policies, uh, to a lesser extent, unilateral coercive measures, in other words, sanctions, uh, and with far less attention to uh, trade, aid, and so forth. Although these were actually central to theorizing um, 
uh, imperialism and anti-imperialism in the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. Um, and, and again, this, this has to do with, with uh, a long-term decline of uh, anti-imperialism, right? Uh, which, which had kind of two declines we can think of, right? We can first, um, there was a, a deliberate assault on uh, the idea of alternatives within the global system, right? After the fall of the USSR, which uh, discredited um, or kind of deflated rather than discredited Marxism as a distinct ideological and political project. Right? So this uh, opened the door. I mean, it was not a coincidence that immediately after the fall of the USSR, you had uh, the total destruction of Iraq, one of the wealthiest countries, a, a dictatorship, but a developmental state in the, in the Arab region with huge oil resources, barely tapped. And then you had the defeat of the first intifada in Palestine. Right. Um, to take two examples. Right. So uh, the, the fall of the USSR was an occasion for a brutal advance in class warfare. This is not to say anything about, uh, you know, 10 or 15 million lives uh, prematurely lost in the Soviet Union uh, with massive income deflation. So huge, huge, massive assault on uh, the livelihoods of people. Now, uh, of course, it's well known, you know, there, there's a long debate, which uh, unfortunately got, got too polemical and distorted about uh, the rise of various approaches um, uh, to interpreting the world in, in that period. But uh, imperialism was very much began to be erased as an analytical category during uh, that period. And you saw a large scale production of just absolute Hasbara, like uh, Hard and Negri saying that there was like faceless imperialism, while the U.S. was carrying out these shattering operations in uh, Palestine, Iraq, uh, Haiti, uh, the former Yugoslavia, which is, people don't even talk about anymore, right? Um, uh, Sudan and so forth, right? And, and I was, it was being legitimately considered a, a reasonable subject within radical presses, like the ones who were uh, giving platform to these uh, babblings from Arden Negri about uh, erasing imperialism in an analytical category. Then we have stage two, uh, what happened with the Iraq war. And again, uh, you know, there was no, there was a strong anti-imperialist movement. Um, at the same time, um, it did not give rise to a kind of set of theorizing around anti-imperialism. Um, that, that could uh, give it the ne needed analytical and theoretical heft that would have uh, given it staying power. Because you need to understand where you are in the world if you need staying power to change. It. Now, uh, this uh, instead, what we really saw was a wide-scale production, industrial production of pro-imperialist leftist perspectives. And this is what uh, Paris Yaros and Sam Moyle refer to as the two lefts. So this is. Uh, although I use it all the time, I always urge people to be self-critical, including, and I urge myself to be self-critical when we use the term left. There are two lefts. There is uh, internationalist left, which wants to dissolve uh, the substantive inequalities between core and periphery, um, and which often is willing to mobilize around radical nationalism towards that end. And there is a left which calls itself cosmopolitan and internationalist, but is in fact uh, having its ideological centers in the global north, relies on bourgeois platforms like the New York, uh, up into and including the New Yorker and the New York Times, uh, for example, Andreas Malm, to uh, regurgitate their perspectives. Um, there's little self-consciousness about the fact that these perspectives are in fact being platformed in bourgeois media, right? This is another left. This is the bourgeois and opportunist left, which then moves into an effective alliance with we can call the Trotskyite academic left, which essentially dominates intellectual production. Now, this has meant, of course, that uh, you know, in, in, uh, in this gap stepped um, a non-class conscious anti-imperialism, which is a real phenomenon. And um, you know, of course, uh, uh, the, the black left has been somewhat um, 
the black left continued to have a uh, press consciousness, anti-imperialism, anti but was not so much part of, was just kind of ignored in many of these conversations. Meanwhile, elsewhere, you would have a very non-class conscious anti-imperialism. So therefore you had issues like uh, agrarian question, food sovereignty and so forth, um, uh, largely excised from the conversation, this question of food aid, the question of the historic construction of the third world food dependence and so forth. I mean, this continued to be cultivated in the South but then uh, uh, with uh, ebbs and flows, but it, it was really marginalized in the North, right? It was very much marginalized in the Northern conversation. It's only recently that we're beginning to see an effective shift and we're beginning to see a lot more interest, I think, on the part of uh, radicals, anti-imperialists, communists in the global North, uh, a, a much greater interest in uh, class conscious anti-imperialism that is correctly prioritizing this, this principal contradiction between uh, imperialism and third world state sovereignty, but yet at the same time is also willing to say, okay, there are these internal social contradictions. There are non-kinetic, non-military measures through which uh, imperialism is proceeding and, um, and we need to pay attention to and learn about those precisely because uh, that is where imperialism is, you know, these, uh, these measures rely on the miseration and destruction of the third world working class. And therefore, if we want to support those people, we need to understand have an imperialism that actually enfolds their perspectives. And in this way, we also, uh, to use the word, steal a march on the kind of bourgeois reformists and also Trotskyite uh, pseudo-analyses, which themselves uh, claim to be speaking in the name of the third world uh, working class, but in the process actually erase the imperialist contradiction or the national contradiction. I mean, they say we're against all imperialism, but they primarily seem to be against whatever imperialism they assign to, for example, Iran. Um, so these are some reasons why we haven't seen that much attention, I think, to questions of uh, agrarian, the agrarian question, agrarian question of national liberation, agrarian question of uh, ecological sovereignty and so forth in uh, recent debates. Although I always wanna say, uh, I don't wanna sound like a sourpuss. So I wanna say this conversation is shifting so quickly that I hope if people, would listen to this in a year, they'd be like, what the hell was Max Heil talking about, right? So I think things are shifting really quickly in a, a good direction. So I'm super happy about that because we need things to shift in order to, uh, to, change, to change the way things are now. No, that's a, that was a fantastic uh, analysis of that problem. And it leads me to a curiosity as well, which is the lack of a strong analysis of neo-colonialism as well on the left. And in reading a lot of, of what you've written, particularly about Tunisia, uh, the one of the most fascinating aspects of it was the role of, of a new kind of imperialism and, and the type of US neocolonialism. I was particularly fascinated by the article you wrote on delinking uh, in Tunisia. And for one thing, just to just to begin, I, I didn't know uh, before reading it that uh, that Mohammed uh, Bazizi was part of a, a family farm and was kicked off that family farm before his self-immolation that led to the Tunisian revolution. Um, so that was, that was fascinating to learn. And I think that speaks to, as you point out in the article, a, a broader problem, which is a lack of analysis of land sovereignty, uh, food sovereignty, agricultural and agrarian sovereignty in these neo-colonial states. You do a great analysis as well of, of the politics of Tunisia since uh, independence and how neo-colonial parties and, and, and a national and petty bourgeoisie have participated in uh, the liberalization of, of agriculture. And in response, you propose a sort of strategic delinking of, uh, of agriculture to create agricultural sovereignty. So I've, I wonder if you can talk more about this, how this research came up, also how it's been shaped uh, in the wake of the 2011 uh, revolution or, or not quite a revolution, but 
you know, the effects of it have been kind of uh, rolled back in Tunisia now. Um, and also how you propose delinking as a, as a solution to this problem uh, centered in, in Samir Amin and, and Mansour's analysis as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I had the very good fortune to um, be in touch with um, several sets of scholars uh, in the, from the third world and also um, to be uh, instructed by, um, especially uh, Phil McMichael who comes out of the world systems tradition and uh, really uh, did the pioneering work on showing uh, the relationship of agriculture and the undermining of uh, third world sovereignty, especially through this question of uh, serial dependence, right? Just excellent work. And then when I came to this region, I had the very good fortune to uh, be in touch with uh, Habib Ayeb, uh, Ray Bush, Martha Mundi, uh, Ramiz Ureik, and then more recently uh, with the work of uh, Moyon Yeros, who I mentioned, uh, Utsa Prabhat Patnayak, Issa Sirji, Maurice Nida, Lynn Osom, Primwazi, and others. And, uh, you know, what all this work makes clear is uh, the absolute centrality of the agrarian question to accumulation on a world scale. Now, why is that? We can think of that as having, uh, you know, historically, of course, it's because the surplus population of the global north carried out settler colonial genocide in order to carry out capitalist state formation in uh, North America, uh, portions, of, uh, portions of South America, um, and especially uh, Australia and New Zealand, Canada. Now, this is one thing. This tells you that the North American, uh, the, the, the capitalist, uh, national capitalist production uh, development model is not replicable, right? This tells you one thing, right? And the reason for its lack of replicability is first of all, rooted in uh, the control of land, right? And, and what you do with surplus populations who are displaced from the land. Second of all, uh, what happens when you try and copy it? What do you get? You get India. So you get, um, uh, you get massive labor reservoirs. I mean, I take India as paradigmatic um, and uh, in some ways the best studied, uh, paradigmatic because you have massive labor reservoirs, right? Um, and they're, they're just permanently displaced or semi-displaced from agriculture. They're semi-proletarianized. Uh, they have a savage compression of their, of their income. And uh, th this is just a basis for the overall uh, maintenance of the process of accumulation on a world scale and the worldwide control of wages and the worldwide protection of the value of money and value transfers south to north, uh, which work through precisely the, the wage compression, which is occurring in the south through the existence of these massive underemployed labor reservoirs. Now, how does that connect to Tunisia? I mean, Tunisia is almost the paradigmatic case of a third world country, which carried out uh, a neo-colonial development policy with massive amounts of U.S. aid. I mean, it is totally unknown that Tunisia is the was the third largest per capita recipient of U.S. foreign aid uh, in the '60s, I think late '50s to, to early '70s, right after Israel um, and South Korea. Now, Israel is of course a case of its own, right? And, and South Korea was. Uh, uh, develop, uh, prophylactically uh, developed of so in sorts um, uh, as a way of containment against uh, North Korea and China, that is the communist option, right? Now, what, so Tunisia was critical, right? I mean, Tunisia was the, the US forward, uh, forward base on a de uh, developmental paradigm level in the Arab region, right? And what did it rely on? You know, so I really went back to the, the classic texts from Tunisia itself, right? Which is, uh, Tunisia had been a very, well-studied country 
not least by his own Marxist social scientists in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s. And they had blistering critiques of the neo-colonial developmental model because it's precisely, precisely through neo-colonialism, which is registered at the level of classes on the local level. That is, neo-colonialism is not just a political formation, it's registered in oppression, a class oppression at the local level. Uh, and Tunisia itself was, was uh, even though it got all this aid, or really because it got all this aid, it was ripped apart. Right, so by 1967, you had an attempted modernization of Tunisian agriculture using primarily a massive replacement of labor with capital, in other words, tractors that were bought with uh, US loans, right? Um, totally in excess of what it made sense for Tunisia to do, given that it was basically considered a labor surplus country with uh, already structural unemployment in the countryside in the 50s and 60s. Um, and then they decided to do further thinking, oh, well, we're going to industrialize quickly enough that we're going to take those jobs. Oops, that didn't work. That after by 1967, they were conceding that they had to do structural labor export uh, to France and, and, uh, and eventually Libya in order to absorb that surplus population in, in at least a partial way and carry out process of circular uh, migration and so forth. What does this tell you? I mean, this is a paradigmatic case of the failure of uh, neo-colonial, neo-developmentalism to actually carry out, uh, lead to a successful uh, resolution, revolution of the developmental process, right? To actually carry out uh, 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 endogenous process of national development, right? Complete and utter uh, failure of sorts. And I say failure, and this is because, I, you know, I think uh, Ben Salah um, and his, uh, his team were, uh, many of them were quite sincere, right? in what they were doing um, and they, they thought it was possible but they kind of uh, how how this how this how this happened that they ended up pursuing these horrible policies I mean, basically it's because it's politically overdetermined by colonialism the price, precise texture of that i don't know yet right this is part of my research um and i can't get access to the archives for that matter and uh, the guy who uh, could say the most about it is dead so we'll see now how does this connect i mean this they tried to carry out a form of national capitalist development or national state capitalist socialist, whatever you want to call it, that was actually linked into the international system and accepting uh, the law of value, saying, okay, we're going to do a measure of uh, import substitution industrialization, then we're going to shift to export-oriented industrialization, okay, we're going to accept world prices for all these things, we're not going to carry out a land to the tiller agrarian form, boom, 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 everything collapsed. Okay, so what's the alternative? The alternative is... Um, what Samir Amin is most famous for, but it was really in a wide currency um, in North Africa, especially. Um, and, and, you know, elsewhere, maybe it, it's not clear. I'm still reconstructing the trajectory of it. Um, but, uh, you know, this idea of auto-centered development was already uh, was actually uh, came from Tanzania. Now, where did it come by from Tanzania? It actually entered Tanzania. I think it probably entered Tanzania in part because of the uh, Zanzibar revolution led by Maoists, where China was like overwhelmingly ideologically powerful. Um, you check out the work of Ayan Babu, um, who was theorizing it now. He's a bit of a, a agricultural modernizationist, but be that as it may, he was heavily inspired by China, right? And uh, so by the early 1970s, Samir Amin, you know, Samir Amin, I'm sure, was the one pushing it because he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a genius. He's a, a Marx of the third world. And it's uh, beautiful that such a person existed. But of course, no uh, genius is walking alone either. And so there were also people like um, uh, Mohamed Doidar, uh, Egyptian Marxist development economist, who is uh, still uh, still alive, actually. Um, Fauzi Mansour, they were all in Dakar with Amin uh, at, the, at uh, this at the African uh, 
Institute for Development and Economic Planning, where they were really pushing forward this idea of delinking and auto-centered development. And they were contrasting this model of an export-oriented or outward-oriented development model uh, based on outward languages with an inward-oriented balanced development model, focusing on balanced rural urban growth, focusing on uh, parity of urban rural wages, focused on uh, slow accumulation from below from the countryside. Uh, obviously, you have to extract some kind of surplus from peasant producers to feed workers in the cities. I mean, that's just how things work. But it doesn't mean you have to immiserate people, right? And so this is really what delinking means, is that you are making the carrying out the development process in such a way that uh, people's lives across the board are getting better rather than uh, worse over the course of the development process, right? Th that's the essence of it. Now, there, there's a lot of specifics, um, in, both in theory and in practice, you know, because it was, uh, in, in practice, this was modeled on revolutionary China, right? This was this idea of delinking. Um, so there's lots of very interesting things um, based on uh, what they were trying to do with uh, aspects of uh, people science and peasant agriculture, forms of um, uh, agroecology avant la lettre in, uh, in China and uh, how that was kind of, uh, aspects of that were uh, borrowed and copied. And then, um, you know, Dawidar and Mansour and uh, Ismail Sabri Abdullah was actually Egyptian sub, um, sub minister of planning at a certain point um, were kind of thinking, okay, how can we copy the, these things and adapt them to the Arab uh, experience? And also um, Abdul Jalil Bedoui and uh, one of the figures that uh, we're working on the most here, uh, Salahdin Al-Amami was an agronomist and also a mid-level planner in, in Tunisia. And, uh, actually mapped out a kind of auto-centered development policy for the Tunisian agricultural sector, right? Absolutely brilliant genius, totally unknown, right? Uh, has never been uh, translated. Um, no one knows who he is outside of, of Tunisia. Um, it's figures like this. And you know, there's other figures like this too. Um, with, uh, there's ones I know, but also there's many I don't know, right? And that's the more important thing is that, you know, People need to look into this and then we can uh, learn together about what has to, who's been thinking about how to change things. Um, and this is really part of what I was trying to accomplish with my book also is to say, okay, like everyone should be looking into some of these uh, neglected thinkers and uh, thinking about what we can take from them for the present. Yeah, and that, yeah. that of, uh, of your research has been really fascinating uh, with respect to theorizing from the South uh, as, you've, as you've talked about. I'm, I'm also really curious in the work that you've uh, discussed with the, the OSAE in Tunisia and their work in, uh, in researching more about agricultural sovereignty and what it could look like in Tunisia. And then this concept that you, that you write a lot about of, of Jasur in Tunisia, um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but you know these kind of uh, endogenous development schemes that have existed, as you point out, for, for uh, tens of thousands of years and have only recently been disrupted by, uh, by capital accumulation and by imperialism, and I wonder, in kind of, in kind of, concluding and in finality, how these can represent a, an alternative approach to, uh, to agriculture and by extension to, development and and, uh, kind of furthering this idea, uh, of and uh, you know, developing a new system for the world. Uh, with respect to um, new development procedures outside of, of the world system. So yeah, if you can kind of elaborate more on that research that's being done with the OSAE and, and JASUR. 
Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the Jasur are, uh, are small check dams, which means they're kind of these earthen and stone dams uh, through which uh, you use the rainwater that cascades down uh, low mountains or low hillsides, and you concentrate it um, at, at uh, lower points, and you, you concentrate it on a series of small terraces. This actually enables you to do things like grow uh, fruit trees in um, you know, environments that are not in fact desert, but many people would, would think of them as desert, you know, on, at a glance. Uh, this is actually um, quite amazing. Now, how is this, um, how is this connected to the future? Uh, you know, so uh, of course there's, there's a lot of work going on at, uh, at OSA, including digitalization programs for the where we just we are two thirds of the way through an interview series with uh, many of the historic leading uh, uh, agronomists and planners and economists in uh, and, and, and so forth in and historians in North Africa, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, um, which uh, should be rolling out over the next year. It's also part of this process of uh, reconstruction of uh, endogenous knowledge because you need to reconstruct. You need the endogenous knowledge as the basis for uh, popular development, right? There's no other uh, there's no other form of knowledge that's going to be properly appropriate, right? I mean, places are particular. That's cool. That's life, right? It's only Western. It's only in the Western sphere that we think places aren't particular, or that we think particular is some, some kind of uh, diminishment rather than uh, the basis of the universe. Now, um, you know, to take something like this, um, there have now been, I think, two to three years of uh, failed olive harvests. Now, an olive is a crop that does fairly well in, uh, in, arid, in arid times. Um, it can subsist now. The olive trees are, are going brown, and um, they're producing very few olives because of the lack of water in the Tunisian south. Uh, this, is, this is simply absolutely climate change uh, related. People, I think, in, in the North, um, and it's understandable and it's not an indictment, uh, but are not aware that what's being collapsed right now, today, are the actual physical landscapes, the biomes of, uh, of the South, right? These are what are facing collapse. Um, and what happens when those fully collapse is, of course, you have uh, a permanent loss of knowledge. You have a permanent loss of the people engaged in uh, uh, landscape management. You'll have permanent losses of, uh, probably permanent losses of uh, biodiversity. And you have a human consequence, which is further concentration of human beings in the cities, right? Um, this is what Mike Davis, in, in a book that otherwise made quite a number of silly points, called a planet of slums, right? Um, which means that you actually have uh, further primitive accumulation, in fact, carried out through the, um, through the edifice of the ecological crisis, right? And you have further uh, massive reservoirs of wage labor that cannot find productive employment even in subsistence agriculture, right? So in fact, the situation has gotten worse, right? Because you lose subsistence agriculture as a basis for a possible endogenous development. Um, because you've actually destroyed the landscape that's on now. These types of uh, endogenous technologies, right? This is, not a, this is not an antiquarianism. It's not an interest in the past on its own terms, no. These, these types of technologies, and of course, their research for uh, modernization, modernization in the good sense, I mean, the, the technical upgrading of them 
in an appropriate and sensitive way, right? I shouldn't have used the term modernization and technical upgrading, research into them, how they can be made more adaptable in the face of climate climactic vagaries, how, you know, maybe they need a catch basin for water that's twice as big in order to continue to concentrate uh, water in them. Uh, maybe there's ways of more efficiently using the water in them through uh, overhead shades, for example. I recently saw overhead shades in Morocco that reduced the need for irrigation um, in the area east of Rabat by 50%. So you've suddenly affect, in reality, you've doubled your irrigation capacity just by using these overhead shades that don't have any impact at all on the productivity of the plant itself. It's and there's endless things like this um, of uh, small farmer innovation that need to be the basis for third world development. Not again, because uh, there's any preference for, for anything in particular, except for having a good life for all the people in the world. And this is how you can do it, right? And the other option, uh, and, and this means you use the existing knowledge and also the existing creative capacity uh, and the creative flexibility of people in situ on site. And this has to be the basis for uh, sovereign development strategy, not least because it's it's skill intense and it's capital non-intense, right? And capital is what's scarce in a third world society that actually needs to mobilize capital for appropriate levels of sovereign industrialization, right? And not use it for this foolhardy, uh, unnecessary gratuitous modernization, so-called, of the agricultural system, right? Um, and this is how you can end up also preserving uh, the ecology, including all of its uh, multifarious aspects, including uh, how it preserves the water table through, um, all kinds of ways, uh, not least allowing for water to percolate, percolate downwards back into uh, reservoirs where um, it can go back upstream and so forth. Now, uh, it might feed streams, uh, depending on what the what the nature of the, the topography and, the, and the, the watershed looks like. Um, of course, it's about biodiversity, which means also uh, preservation of uh, various types of seed stocks, many of which may be more uh, resistant to extreme periods of drought. They might even more relevantly be resistant to uh, various forms of blight. Um, which are very relevant when it comes to monocrops that are intensely vulnerable to blight. And actually, these are needed genetic reservoirs, right? So actually, this type of, um, uh, of uh, popular eco-development from below uh, through appropriate technology is so central, not, uh, not merely to a stabilization, uh, popular development of the third world, but also, of course, uh, a common future for everybody. So it's in everyone's interest, right? This is not like a, a pity party, right? This is about uh, preserving uh, these areas so that they're for, uh, available, so that uh, in many ways they have their own contribution to uh, the process of kind of a, a just life or communism uh, on a world scale. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer. And I, I just have one last question to kind of wrap up. Uh, in, in reading what you wrote about Tunisia in particular, it kind of made a, a connection that I don't think has really been made previously in the minds of a lot of people in the West with the uh, destruction of, of the environment and the devastation uh, of the climate by imperialism and by capitalism with the, uh, the unrest and the civil unrest and, and protest movements that have struck uh, North Africa and the Middle East uh, in general uh, over the past, past decade now going on. And you know, beginning with the with the Tunisian Revolution and the Arab Spring, and then even today, looking in just recent news with Tunisia about uh, the intensifying political crisis there with the dissolution of parliament, and so this crisis has has not ended; it, it hasn't abated in any way, and seems really, if anything, to be this. I know, of course, like the the long durée, um, you know, in, in history, but it seems like it it's a never ending crisis period and a never ending Arab Spring. 
continually going on. And I just, I, I ask that to say, to what extent uh, this kind of crisis within the Middle East and North Africa with Tunisia as, as an exemplification of it uh, represents kind of the, the prospect for uh, ongoing, never-ending resistance and struggle against imperialism, against capitalism in the world system, the prospect for something new, and then at the same time, how deeply ingrained some of the some of these problems are into the structures of the world system, with something like uh, ecological and equal exchange, kind of emphasizing to what extent these are uh, these problems of of agricultural dominance and a lack of food sovereignty in the third world are deeply related to the very fact of uh, the existence of the global north in the first world and and the continued unequal exchange, which. You know, in reading in reading someone like Arrighi Emanuel, he he comes out and says reformism is, is impossible for something like that. It requires uh, something far more revolutionary. So I kind of wonder to what extent this crisis in the in the Anthropocene and in the world system, which is exemplified by this long ongoing crisis in in Tunisia and in the third world in general represents kind of a the prospect for a uh, a long intense struggle to break free of, of this and to end uh, unequal exchange as it exists and to end uh, this domination of the global north uh, on top of the south right so i mean there's a lot going on with that question so i'm just gonna i'm gonna address a few parts of it because it's a, it's an hour long answer at least um you know, when we look at uh, contemporary uh, accumulation on a world scale, right, and the degree of uh, wealth inequality, these are really increased, especially the amount of it that's uh, debt fueled, right? These are actually claims on future revenue streams, right? So they're claims on future extraction and even further um, intensified extraction, right? Um, and this is so already uh, a huge portion of the third world population is, uh, is completely poverty. It's been getting outside of China. It's been getting much worse over the last ten years since the Arab Spring and since COVID. It's been catastrophic. I mean, what's going on in Tunisia right now? It, what's going on in Tunisia is catastrophic. Um, it, it's absolutely catastrophic. Now, uh, you know, the, the entire uh, middle class or even educated lower class wants to leave the country and sees no future here. Um, and um, the amount of po the the poverty is is quite beyond belief, right? I mean, uh, many people in the lower middle class are, um, you know, they eat bread, um, soy oil, and onions, right? That's uh, that's their regular meal. Um, and this is to say nothing of the the ecological crisis, right? The absolute cancer plague in Gabus, um, in the textile processing areas, and elsewhere. I mean, there's just one after another waste zone. Of, um, and this is part of uh, the environmentally uh, unequal exchange, ec ec ecologically unequal exchange, right? That um, in fact, it's a suppression of uh, social reproduction, which necessarily includes the social reproduction of uh, socially necessary nature that's needed for uh, the reproduction of people's lives. That's what's being attacked also through the process of um, uneven exchange, right? This is, I think, where the theorization of uh, environmentally, uh, ecologically unequal exchange should go. Um, although I haven't done it, um, but someone should do it. Now, what this means is how, how are you going to resolve this? I mean, um, are, how can it be resolved in a way that, that leads to some form of uh, restored stability, right? 
Um, you know, uh, I, this is a, it's a period of permanent insurrection, right? Um, and, you know, um, you know, I, I, I take a distance from this kind of uh, over-enthusiasm for third world revolt that we see a lot in the North because it's too easily instrumentalized, uh, if not just for like uh, pumping out the shitty monograph, um, uh, but also for regime change, right? So, um, so we need to be aware of that, right? But it, it doesn't change the fact that there's a period of permanent insurrection that's based on uh, ideological discrediting of capitalism uh, as a current mode of rule, right? It's totally discredited. It's discredited in the North too, right? It's discredited everywhere. How are you gonna, what are you gonna do? Well, you either can impose a new system of rule by a great deal of violence and enfolding some people probably in the North into a new worldwide social compact. Um, and you, you just uh, apply violence to the rest of the world, it's like fascism, right? The CC model, right? What's going on in Egypt, it's 100,000 political prisoners. Um, uh, or or uh, you apply violence on the scale of Yemen, right? To try to control the anti-systemic movement that does emerge, which nobody seems to give a fuck about, right? People are like, Yemen is suffering. No, no it's not that Yemen is suffering. It's that Yemen has an anti-systemic movement that says um, it, it anti-America and anti-Zionist, right? Uh, and is actually now interested in food sovereignty. That's what's critical about Yemen, not just that Yemen is suffering, right? Um, so that, that's the other option. Then you burn it down. You burn down 500,000 people through uh, famine and bombs, right? And, and they, they still don't, uh, they, they don't stop fighting because they don't have anything to begin with, right? So this is why you have permanent insurrection, uh, not just in the Arab region, but elsewhere. I mean, uh, you still have uh, extensive radicalization, um, interest in, um, in China and Maoism, in Zimbabwe, for example, right? I mean, Zimbabwe is not finished, although there's a reversal of some ways of the agrarian form right now. Um, so, you know, we're in a period of permanent insurrection. Now, the period of permanent insurrection poses the question of how we orient to this period of permanent insurrection, right? Do we build, uh, first of all, left culture, and then second of all, left organizations that, um, reproduce and that reflect and uphold this culture that's based on a, an internationalism that uh, takes seriously things like uh, Amazon unionization, critically important, takes critically important uh, crisis of social reproduction in the North, uh, takes critically as critically important uh, the struggle for police abolition, but chooses to, uh, to link those to a committed and a real internationalism, not this, uh, the committed internationalism, we take seriously saying, okay, we don't want those things. And we also don't want these things of the US uh, applying unilateral coercive sanctions to the rest of the world. We don't want the US arming uh, Saudi Arabia to carry out a proxy war against uh, Florida, against Yemen, so forth. we don't want those things. Um, and, and that means, what, what that means in turn is understanding that, you know, when a country and I, like um, the Zimbabwe carries out an, an agrarian reform, you need to be prepared for that to be a flashpoint in the global left, right? You need to be prepared for when uh, Venezuela produces a flashpoint that's suddenly conflictual on the U.S. left and understand that actually there's two lefts. And one of those lefts is committed to a real substantive and deep internationalism and winning that flashpoint rather than losing it is the advance of the class struggle on a global scale. And this is how we actually produce um, a decent world. So we need to integrate these lessons we've learned um, over, over the last 20 years of struggle. These, did, I think, and, and other ones too, 
that uh, I don't know about, but other people do, um, and build them into our practice so that we can actually uh, have, a, have a better world. Well, thank you so much. That was a great answer and really elucidated it, it better for me, even though it was a, a very long question and, and, as you said, could be a, an hour answer itself. Um, so thank you so much for, for taking some time to speak with me. I, I really appreciated learning a lot from, from all you had to say. And I'm I'm really enjoying reading more of what you've written because it's very it is like a the next level of uh, world systems and dependency and delinking and it's kind of taking it further, I think, which is really, really fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate it. So I'll, I'll up this and send it to you. And uh, I'd love to stay in touch uh, as well. Um, it's cool that you're also a, a Cornell grad. Um, so you, you have experienced the Cornell culture uh, to a certain extent as well. Uh, and I'm also really interested in your work for Palestine as well. Like I, I mentioned, uh, I'm in the SJP here and and would love to maybe follow up and email you about that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. Happy to. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. All right, man. You too. Thanks a lot.